Great is thy faithfulness. Beautiful song, beautiful message, very inspiring song. Psalm, I mean, excuse me, Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23 says, The Lord's compassions are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Thank God for his faithfulness. So let's sing about God's faithfulness. All three verses. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see. Amen to that. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see, all I have needed thy hand hath provided, great is thy faithfulness, Lord. see God's mercy and I know y'all do too alright we'll have a little popcorn now uh, <laughs> if y'all would come up with something to sing and we'll sing them if we know them it's contingent on two people the piano player and me <laughs> whether we know them or not someone holler out something 342 sounds familiar to me 342, Rock of Ages, amen. We'll just sing the first verse of this and uh, hope to get some more later after this one. Ready. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side 
blood which flowed be of sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure someone else 509 509 509 Let me have another one. I don't know that one. No. You come up and lead it. Do you know it, Joanne? Come on, Doug, lead us here. I'd like to learn it. But not not leading it. I'd like to learn it without leading it, okay? <laughs> you come on. Give it a shot. Okay, go ahead. Too well, do we? This came my soul in mercy to proclaim, and from the depths of sin and shame, through grace he lifted me from sinking sand. He lifted me. Tender hand, he lifted me from shades of night to plains of light. Oh, praise his name, he lifted me. <laughs> Never heard it before. No, huh? 553. Yeah, you done good. Nearer my God to thee. Oh, it's been so long since I sung yes. Come on up here, Cammy, and lead us. It'd be, no, sure enough, it'd be easier on me. I think I've heard it and sung it, but I don't know it good enough to lead it. Yeah. Okay, one more. 515. 50 or 15? 15. 515. 15. 15. 15. Since I have been redeemed. All right, we don't know that. One more. 516. 516, redeemed. That ain't the, that ain't the regular redeemed, is it? It's, well, I know the song redeemed, but it's, that's not the one. Another one. 
Pick something easy. Quit picking these hard ones. I'm just picking. Something new is good if we know it. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of songs in here we hardly ever sing. Huh? 386, that sounds familiar. Comforter has come. Amen. <laughs> Ready? Oh, spread the tidings round Wherever man is found Wherever human hearts And human woes abound Let every Christian tongue Proclaim the joyful sound The Comforter has come The Comforter has come The Comforter has come The Holy Ghost from heaven The Father's promise given Oh, spread the tidings round Wherever man is found, the comforter has come. Okay, y'all have a seat, please. Pastor Joe, you come on. How is everybody? All right. We're doing all right. Well, good to see everybody out tonight, and uh, thankful for some different singing. I, I'm glad we brought some popcorn singing back the past couple weeks. That's been fun, and uh, I li always like to hear. Um, I like to hear the different ones that people have to say. It, I think it tells a lot about us. Uh, you know, it tells a lot about your personality, the songs you like, and then as well too about some of the different ones that maybe you haven't sung in a long time, or that you know get, kind of get dusted off, or get to learn a new song. And so uh, thankful for that. That's always fun. Uh, anyways, well, take your Bible tonight. Turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 5, uh, looking at the man of sorrows, part 1 last week. This week will be part 2, looking at verses 6 through 11. And we're going to be seeing a couple things tonight, as we did last week as well. Uh, what we're going to do tonight is focus more so on this. We're kind of going to we're going to look here at David, right, the psalmist here, and we're going to see his issue, see his pain, his suffering, and then we're going to jump ahead, and we're going to see Jesus fulfilling that, and then we're going to jump back to David, and we're going to see his suffering, and then we're going to jump forward again to Jesus, right, and you guys get the picture here, okay, I don't have to keep going back and forth, uh, but what we're going to look at tonight, I want to read for us uh, verse 1 through 22, uh, just, to, just to look at that main section uh, that's dealing with the suffering of, of Jesus and, and ultimately as well uh, in the context, of course, David is feeling all of this himself but fulfilled in Christ. He says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not in the night season and am not silent, but thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered, they trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men and despise of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusts in the Lord that he would, be, that he would uh, deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it melteth, it melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, about, uh, compassed me. Uh, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. 
Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the reading of your word. We're grateful for the songs that could be sung tonight. Lord, such a wide range, variety, but Lord, we're reminded, uh, Lord, that there were a million songs that we could sing and we still would uh, not have near enough uh, to, to tell of your greatness and your kindness to us. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, tonight that we would have a song within our heart to look to you, to, to praise you. And, Lord, that as we look to your word tonight, God, that we would see the suffering that David felt there as the psalmist, but as well and ultimately the fulfillment of Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection for our sins. We pray that tonight that you would show us Christ, that you would uh, reveal things to us tonight that we need for our own heart, or that we'd be encouraged and have our hearts prepared uh, for the week ahead. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look first of all in verse 6 through 8. We're going to see the pain uh, that is seen here, that is expressed. Uh, sort of two things tonight, verse 6 through 8. We're going to look at the pain. In verses 9 through 11, we're going to look at the plea that is given from David the psalmist. And then, of course, Christ being the fulfiller of such. Now, ultimately, this is a prophetic, a messianic psalm. While this is certainly applicable to David as he's writing this, this is being written at either perhaps one of two times, but nevertheless, this is at uh, some point in time in David's life where Everything around him has crumbled. He feels absolutely desolate and deserted. Uh, he is on his own. It feels as if everyone is against him. It feels as if death is closer to him than any of his friends or family. And even to the degree where he feels abandoned by the Lord, uh, even at times in this. And we saw how Jesus had that cry on the cross. We talked about that in verse 1. How Jesus directly quotes this, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of course, he cries it out. Uh, in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Uh, and, and as we come now tonight, uh, we had seen how though he feels this abandonment, he continues to put his trust in the Lord, but thou art holy. And we talked about how the holiness of God last week is what shows us God's character. It drives us to trust him. It, it is our very motivation to trust him. And now as we come to verse 6 through 8 tonight, we're going to see the pain. Notice the imagery of the language. He says, but I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people, all they that see me laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. First off, we see that David is writing this from a place of great and terrible suffering. He cries out, but he feels that he is so low that he is the lowest of creatures, even a worm. How many of your favorite animals growing up was a worm? No? How many of you, when you were asked as a, as a kid, or, or maybe even if you were asked now, if you could be any animal, what would you want to be? And how many of you said, oh, I'd love to be a worm? No? No takers out there? Right? Uh, no one says in their right mind, if I could be an animal, I'd want to be a worm. We always say cool stuff like, you know, mice and rats and snakes, right? No, we say much cooler things than that, right? Uh, now, here, here's what we understand. When you and I consider a worm, we don't consider it much, do we? Matter of fact, most of the time, if you see a worm on the sidewalk, especially as a kid after a rainy day, one of your favorite games to play uh, is squish the worms, right? Did y'all ever play that game? Okay, y'all really make me feel really terrible as a child. I really, I promised I had a good childhood. I was hugged and loved and everything. But we squished worms, okay, all right? Uh, you'll, you'll have to be okay with it. We squished worms, you know why? Because to us, they were insignificant, they meant nothing. Now, it might sound gross, but you know what happens? Even if you very sanctified spiritual people out there, not like me, okay? When you accidentally squish a worm, what happens? Okay, you ask for forgiveness. Well, let me be more specific with my question. Perhaps I wasn't quite uh, specific enough. Maybe you guys that are spiritual ask for forgiveness. For me, I, I go, ooh, listen, did you hear that sound right here? Right? You go, <laughs> I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry, Sharon. Uh, at least it's a worm and not a cats or horses, okay? Or it could be much worse. But when you squish that worm, normally stuff comes out the other end, doesn't it? If you step on one half of it, the other side. Now we laugh at this, right? But we see that ultimately feeling as if you were a worm, is there anything lower than feeling as if you're just a worm? Feeling like if you were squished, it would not matter, as if you were the smallest and lowest of life forms, is the idea. David here 
As Guzik writes, the intensity of the conflict made David feel not only ignored, but insignificant. Those are two terrible feelings. It's awful to feel ignored, to, to feel unheard. Or un, but then now he feels so insignificant that he's not even worth being heard. Guzik continues, he says, God seems to help other men, but seems to give no help to worms. The low standing he had in his own eyes and in the eyes of others simply added to his agony. Now here's what we find with this. Jesus ultimately is the true fulfillment of such suffering and pain. Though David here in this moment of time, either perhaps uh, on, uh, in fear of his life and on the run from uh, either uh, Saul or Absalom, nevertheless, we are, we are not sure, but either way what's taking place here is he is on the run. He feels so insignificant. He feels unheard. Remember, he feels even that place that we talked about last week of almost being a, this sort of abandoned mindset where he feels as if God has left him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken there clearly means forsaken. He's not, Lord, how come you're uh, letting me linger in this suffering? No, he's saying, why have you left me altogether? You forsook me. Why are you so far from helping me? And from the word, words of my roaring, I cry and you don't hear. Uh, what an awful place to be at in such suffering and turmoil where he feels this. But then, of course, David, once more in verses 3-5, through five, he cries and he trusts in the Lord and he trusts in God's holiness. But when we look to Christ there on the cross, we see that Jesus fulfills to an infinite degree the pain that David is feeling here. It is there that Jesus is not only ignored, but seemingly uh, feeling insignificant. Everything and everyone has turned uh, their backs upon Him. He ultimately faces the worst suffering and pain that there ever was known. Not merely physically either, by the way. Plenty of other people had died by crucifixion. And even, even more painful ways that, to die than crucifixion. And that's about one of the most painful ways there, there is. We find that He faced such a spiritual turmoil because of the weight of sin, your sin, my sin, being placed upon Him there on that cross as He pays the price uh, for our transgressions. There is none that experienced the death of sorrow and suffering as Jesus did in His life and in His death. We can see this for just a moment. Uh, John chapter 1 gives us a little bit of an indication at the beginning of His life about the suffering that would take place. Uh, we see in John chapter 1, verse 5, and the light shineth in darkness, the darkness comprehended it not. So no one understands that the, the light has come. But the idea of comprehended, it is not merely an intellectual comprehension, but it is a, an acceptance is the idea. So no one accepts him as the light. But then you go down to verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. I Meaning he comes to the people that had all the prophecy, all the law, all the scripture that pointed to his coming, that foretold his coming, and yet they did not receive him. And we even sing, we're, we're going to be singing Christmas carols in just a few short weeks, so get ready, right? Uh, there's some great doctrine in, in, in Christmas carols. We ought to sing them throughout the year some, but nevertheless, we sing, let earth receive her king. And here we find that he came unto his own who should have seen him as king, who should have seen him as prophet, priest, and king, as the, as the Messiah, as the, the promised one, and yet they missed out altogether. Then, of course, if you go back and you look at Isaiah's prophecy of what we call the suffering servant passage. We've gone there a little bit already as we studied uh, I, uh, Psalm 22. But here in Isaiah 53, he tells us specifically, verses 3 through 7, he is despised and rejected of men. Right From the very beginning of his life, he was despised and rejected. For, even from infancy, he was despised and rejected. There were those that despised and rejected him because they believed that he was a, a bastard child. They, they believed that he was completely insignificant. They believed that he was born and out of sin. Now, that's not the case. Our Lord was not born in such a state. He was born of a virgin as promised and prophesied in the Scripture. And from the, very from the very beginning of his life, there are those that despise and reject him simply because of what they believe his mother and father to be. All throughout his life, he'd be despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That's the idea of what David is expressing there in Psalm 22. This idea of feeling 
uh, stricken and smitten of God and, and afflicted, and yet Jesus ultimately fulfills that as He is being stricken and smitten of God and afflicted for the sins of the world. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before her shears is dumb, so He openeth not His mouth. Spurgeon writes, He felt himself to be comparable to a helpless, powerless, downtrodden worm, passive while crushed and unnoticed and despised by those who trod upon him. He selects the weakest of creatures, which is all flesh, and but comes when trodden upon writhing, quivering flesh, utterly devoid of any might except strength to suffer. This was a true likeness of himself when his body and soul had become a mass of misery, the very essence of agony, and the dying pangs of crucifixion. I want to give to us something tonight as well that I learned uh, in this study. The word worm here is one that we need to notice. The word worm here is, of course, we have to remember the Bible was being written in Hebrew. Now, what's the Hebrew word here for the word worm? It's the word tola. The word tola is translated uh, all throughout the Scripture in the Old Testament in many places. For sake of time tonight, we don't have time to get through, through all of them. I'll try to look at a few of them if I'm able to. But the word is used and translated in those other places outside of Psalm 22, verse 6 here. Here it's translated as worm. And the other places, it's translated crimson or scarlet. Now why is that? There's a vast difference between something that is a worm and something that is scarlet or being described as scarlet or crimson, right? Scarlet, crimson, we're describing something that is what we would call red or, or a red tint or of a red dye, right? Now, most are translated as that throughout the Old Testament. You can, trans, you can uh, get your strong concordance and look throughout the, the different references of that word. But nevertheless, here's what it means. It was coming from a crimson worm. A red worm that was used to literally, and I hate, you know, I know I've already kind of disgusted you all talking about squishing worms, but what they would do at the time in Old Testament days is they would collect the worms, which shows that they were readily available. So there's a lot of them, right? You don't have to look too hard to find worms, right? And they would find, gather these worms, and these were called in the word tola, it meant a crimson worm or scarlet worm, because when they would squish it, kill it, Squish it all the way out. What would come out besides, you know, dirt and guts, I guess. I'm sorry, right? I squished worms as a child. What do you expect from me, okay? What would come out was a scarlet crimson dye. Now, what they would do is they would collect the dye. And you know what they would do with it? They would dye things. You know what color? Scarlet and crimson. You know why? Because that's what come out of it. That's the name of the worm. Now, here's what's interesting. When you translate, or rather when you um, look at this word worm, the, the Hebrew, tola, you know where you're going to find it? You're going to find it used for the same word crimson or scarlet in the building in Exodus chapter 26 and the description of the tabernacle. It is the same word that is used for the scarlet crimson color of the tabernacle curtains. Those were important. The tabernacle curtains were there not only uh, to create the shelter and the outer frame of the tabernacle, the place where God would meet with man and man would go and offer sacrifice unto God, especially the importance of it on the Day of Atonement and the daily sacrifice and worship that took place there as they were there in the wilderness all the way into the day of the temple. And what we find is that it was a picture of God dwelling, tabernacling with man. Jesus comes in John chapter 1 that He tabernacled, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, right? We see the picture, the tabernacle, the temple pointing to Christ. But that same word is used for the red dye that was used in the tabernacle curtains, as well as the tabernacle curtain that was in the doorway to, of the entrance between um, uh, the Holy of Holies and then the rest of uh, the tabernacle. Right? That, that entrance where you have to pass through scarlet crimson. But what else? It's as well of used that of the veil. As you read the description of the tabernacle, it describes all these different 
pieces that are to be woven together and knit together and brought together that are creating this tapestry that points to the worship of God and God's very word and work of redemption for man's sins. And that man can only approach God by grace through faith, through a substitutionary bloody sacrifice. It always has been that way. Now praise God that Jesus is that full and final, perfect, complete, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So now we do not need any more sacrifices. He is the sacrifice. But there, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else. Now, uh, in that description in Exodus 26, it is seen there. Um, I'll read for us one that's a familiar uh, place where the same word here translated as worm is used <clears throat> as crimson or scarlet. Isaiah 118. I'm sure you've heard this before. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, though your sins be as worm, though your sins be as this crimson scarlet worm, though your sins be as tola, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now here's what's so wonderful. What we find is that Jesus Christ his shed blood is the scarlet crimson thread throughout Scripture. It is what ultimately brings about our salvation. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And we find here that as David cries out, but I am a worm, we are seeing something much more than David just feeling sorry for himself. We are seeing the prophetic of Jesus Christ's own blood that was there pictured in the tabernacle, pictured in the temple, then seen and displayed for the world to see for all time and eternity there upon the cross as He bleeds and dies for our sins. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us this. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at a couple of verses here in Hebrews just to show us a little bit more about Jesus' sacrifice and what this looks like here at this humiliation of Jesus where even He is sort of the fulfillment of this expression, but I am a worm. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Then you flip over just a few pages in chapter number 10. Chapter number 10 of Hebrews, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, confidence to enter into the holiest. What's the holiest? The holy of holies of what would be in the tabernacle or the temple. Notice he says, by the blood of Jesus. Now, what is interesting? What did we just talk about with that I am a worm? The translation there, the same as scarlet and crimson that's seen where? In Exodus 26, in the tabernacle, in the curtains, and the veil. What veil? The veil between the holy of holies and the rest of the tabernacle where the only one that could enter into the Holy of Holies could do so once a year, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, who is Jesus Christ? He is the great high priest. He is the true prophet, priest, and king. No one could fulfill all three offices except He alone, and He has fulfilled all. He not only is the prophet, priest, and king, but He Himself is the sacrifice. And it is by Him that we are able to enter into the holiest. It is through the blood of Jesus. So whereas before they entered in and they see the picture already of the blood that the high priest is carrying into the Holy of Holies, he sees the picture of the necessary uh, aspect of blood for atonement all over the tabernacle. Scarlet and crimson thread is everywhere to remind that every moment of worship, every offering of worship must be done by blood. For without it, there is no remission of sins. Then what happens? Verse number 20, by a new and living way. You see, when that high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies on that Day of Atonement, what was he carrying with him? He was carrying the symbol, if you will, of death. Something had to die for him to carry in blood in order to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. He had to pass through uh, uh, seeing all the scarlet, seeing all the crimson, being reminded of the fact that in order for his sins and the sins of the people to be atoned for for one more year, an innocent one had to die. Jesus is the new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh. Now what do we know? We're told in Matthew, as we'll get into perhaps this evening as well, but we saw it last week, 
When Jesus dies and he gives up the ghost, what happens? What does what it describe there in Matthew? That the veil in the temple was what? Torn. Torn in two, top to bottom. Now, how important is this? Why is this so important? Because Jesus is the new and living way. He has consecrated the new covenant by his blood and by his flesh, which is why when we partake of the Lord's Supper and he gave instructions for it, he says, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Uh, take and drink, this is my blood, the new covenant, right? Poured out for you. This is, this is life now. This is the way. There is no other way outside of this. And we find that this very word, I am a worm, reminds us and pictures and prophesies what Jesus is going to do for us. How wonderful it is. Whether David knows exactly what he's doing or not, we know that the Holy Ghost does, and he puts us here for a reason to show us, as you trace this, you trace redemptive history, redemption story that leads us to Christ being our perfect sacrifice for sin. And as He sheds His blood for us, He reminds us that we are but worms and yet He has saved us. That, that Jesus was squished as a worm, if you will, for our sins. That He has offered His own flesh to make a new and living way for us so that we do not need a tabernacle. So that we do not need a temple. That we become the temple of the Holy Ghost of God. That we become the dwelling place of the Lord Himself. That we do not need a, a, another priest to go in on behalf of us. That we do not need someone to carry in blood once a year on our behalf. But rather, the blood has been shed for us. It is full, final. And when Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is finished. The work is done. And Jesus reigns forever. So as we are about to see the continued pain, may we look and see that though there is a great deal of pain here and the cry of, but I am a worm and no man reproach of men and despise the people, yet we find here in the very depths of it the prophecy of salvation through the blood of Christ. May we never be ashamed of the blood. May we never stop singing about the blood. May we never stop speaking about the blood. The blood of Christ is absolutely necessary. We have a bloody, a bloody cross. We have a, a bloody faith. We must remember that it is by His blood that we are saved, that we are cleansed, that we can have our sins that are scarlet be turned white as snow, white as wool, right? As we had just read there in Isaiah 1. As we move forward here, there is a total loss of dignity as others despise Him to shame here in, in verses 7 well, really in 6 through 8. He's a reproach of men, despise the people. As we read back in Isaiah 53, Jesus fulfills this as well, uh, that, they, that He is uh, being mocked, ridiculed, reviled, and yet He reviles not. As we have seen in 1 Peter 2, He, he is reviled, but He reviles not. Uh, there are those that mock Him, yet He does not mock them. If anyone had a right or an ability to mock anyone on the day of Jesus' death, it was Jesus, and yet He did not. Like a lamb, he did not open his mouth, is the idea. He says, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. Could you imagine watching someone today walk downtown and they're on their way to be executed over at the courthouse and people line up on the streets and they laugh and they mock and they ridicule? It used to happen. It happened to Christ. It happened to countless criminals who died. And we find that Jesus died uh, a criminal's death, but he was no criminal. He died for crimes of which you and I committed. This shows us his great divine love and grace and mercy for our souls. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Now remember, from Psalm 1 through 21, we find several times in those Psalms where David discusses the fact that there are those in his life who are saying, Hey, David, where's the God that you serve? If the Lord loved you, David, why would you be running for your life? Uh, David, if you were right with God, why would these things be happening to you? Uh, and they would mock him and ridicule him. And yet here we find the same. Jesus faces it to an infinite degree. They are on the cross. They are mocking the Messiah. They are mocking their Maker. You say, well, why and how could they do such? Well, every sin does the same. Every sin mocks God as Maker and Messiah and, and as 
ruler and authority over our life. Every sin is a mockery against God. David is being ridiculed and seemingly having the, his relationship with God put into question by his enemies. They, they mock him. They're saying, if, if he belonged to God, then God would deliver him, but he doesn't. If God was really for him, then he would deliver David. Now, what do you and I know? Well, we know what the enemy did not know. God did deliver David time and time and time again, even in spite of David's sinfulness. Yet he found repentance, yet he found that he was always delivered. Why? Because we find that ultimately God's people will always be delivered. Though they might kill the body, they cannot kill the soul. Though they might divide your head from your body, they cannot divide you from your Savior. So we find that ultimately in Christ, we will be delivered all the day long. We will be delivered throughout all of eternity and we will ultimately be delivered when we leave this world behind. It is a great day of deliverance. Now Jesus fulfills this passage as well in verses 7 and 8 where they mock, they ridicule, they shake their head, they, they wag their tongues, if you will. They cry out, He trusted the Lord that He would deliver him. Let Him deliver him, seeing that He delighted in him. Turn with me now uh, to what we looked at last week as well. We're just going to look back over at uh, Matthew 27 once more. Matthew 27, verse 27. Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. They stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put on his head and a reed in his right hand. Why'd they do this? Well, he was being accused of being king of the Jews, right? So he's being crucified for. We're going to see it later on. Verse 37, this is the king of the Jews. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, let me ask you this. We don't have a, a king, right? But normally, if you have a president or some sort of political dignitary, what happens when they walk in? Well, people stand up. How about this, even? Uh, you go into a courthouse, the judge walks in, what happens? All rise, right? Some of y'all know, right? You've been there, right? Okay. <laughs> outed yourself there. Now, here's what we find. And I watched enough Judge Judy. That's the only reason why I know that. But here, here they come, and we see that there's this respect that is given, but notice what we find here. They did not respect the man Jesus. He was despised and rejected. He was not accepted. He was not beloved. And so what they do is they strip him. They put on this scarlet robe. Notice that theme, right? They, they put a not a crown of jewels and, and diadems and, 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 and beauty and and fanfare and, and royalty and authority as crowns were to be represented as. They put one of thorns. But what's so interesting, you know where the first place that we find thorns in? Thorns are first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall, where God tells Adam, now you're going to have thorns and thistles. Jesus, the sinless one, takes thorns and thistles wrapped around his brow. The brow that is the one that belongs, the crown that says King of kings and Lord of lords. Who forever reigns. Who stepped down and put on flesh to be born in a stall, to be born in a manger, to be born to lowly people, to not come and, and have a golden throne or a golden scepter in His first coming. But we know that the promise is that one day He will rule with a rod of iron, his scepter, and he will show his authority forevermore. But in this, they mock him, they strip him, they bow down before him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they have no idea what they're doing. They spit upon him. Could you imagine spitting upon the president or a king or a judge? You can, you can do it. You can. One time. Then you're going to jail, right? And it's not going to be good. They spit upon him. They took the reed that he was holding. Now, no one takes a king's reed. No one takes a king's scepter. No one takes a king. Why? Because that is a representation of the king's authority, his power, his majesty, his royalty, his uh, authority to rule over the kingdom. And they take it and they beat him with it. This shows us what he goes through in the ridicule and the mocking. It says then, and after that they had mocked him, took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Then, jumping down to verse 37 to 43, 
and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. They passed by, reviled him, wagging their heads. Where do we see that? Psalm 22, verse 7. And saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, remember he had prophesied that, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Uh, the idea as well as the same. If, if God loved you, if you were in His favor, you could just hop on off of there. Likewise also the chief priests mocking Him with, with the scribes and the elders. Now who are the priests, the scribes, and the elders? Well, these are the folks that in just a little while would have been preparing and finalizing the sacrifices. Uh, they would have been participating all week long with great work and fanfare uh, for this time of, of the Passover and remembrance and, and fulfilling all these things. And yet we find they take the time out of their busy schedule to come and to mock this man. You know why? Because these scribes, these ones who studied and knew and preached and taught the Scriptures could not see the Messiah. It was prophesied in those very same Scriptures that most of them would have had memorized. Then we see as they cry out, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. If He be the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe. He trusted in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He will save Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Once more we see that in Psalm 22, verse 8. Not only do they reject Jesus' deity and Messiahship, but as well as even being in a position of favor with God. They believe Him just to be a criminal like the one on the right and the one on the left. Those that don't know the Lord mock His people while they suffer, believing that it proves their worldview of sin and unbelief. We find that it is the natural man that mocks the spiritual. It is the natural flesh that mocks the supernatural and the miraculous and the Lord Himself. We find from the very first couple of Psalms already that there are those that mock God but they will only be able to mock but for so long. In this, we see David certainly facing all this suffering, all this pain. But we see that Jesus fulfills it to an infinite degree and a true and a more complete degree. Now in verses 9-11, through we see that the pain turns into a plea. Psalmist writes, But Thou art He that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. Notice the progression of growing up is the idea. Of the progression of, of infancy and, and childhood. And I was cast upon thee from the womb, thou art my God, from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. David, ultimately Jesus, continues to trust in the Lord's promise and provision, looking ahead by faith to deliverance from the enemy. Guzik writes, David understood, both for himself and prophetically speaking for the later to come Messiah, that in the depth of agony and the sense of abandonment, one could still appeal to God in remembrance of better times. The forsaken one did not say, since I feel abandoned by God, I will abandon him. No, he remained steadfast through the dark night of the soul and still made appeal to God who cared for him since birth. Here's what we find. God is to be trusted because He is sovereign and in control of our life and His hand is upon us from our mother's womb till our day in a tomb. From our whole life, from beginning to end and everything in between, the Lord knows, the Lord cares, it is the Lord who is formed and fashioned us. Turn with me for just a moment over to Psalm 139. Familiar passage as well, but I want to read, read it for us uh, for, for just a second. Uh, just to be reminded of what God has done in the life of David and in our own life, and even in the physical life of Christ. Psalm 139, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Can you think about this, right? Can you attain to the knowledge of the knowledge of God, let alone the knowledge of, that God has about you. God knows more about you than you know about you. Right? He goes on, he says, Whither shall I go from my spirit, or whither shall I flee from my presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, ideas of death, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, uh, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth, or, uh, shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. Meaning, uh, whether it's nighttime or daytime, it does not affect or bother the Lord. It does not bring him to a place of, well, I can't work in the night. He transcends all of these things because he holds the light and the darkness. Furthermore, he says, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Here's what we can go ahead and rest assured. Every child in the womb is precious to God. We find that every child, every human being outside of the womb is precious to God because it is He who has knit them in their mother's womb. There is no child that is formed and, and created by chance. There is none that is uh, made in a way that God did not intend. The Lord knows exactly what He is doing with His hands. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! Not only is the thought precious that God thinks about me, but His very thoughts about me are precious. God thinks precious thoughts about His children. Furthermore, it's not just precious, but it's in a, of a quality, but it is in a quantity that it is... Uh, nearly infinite. How great is the sum of them? I can't count them. If I should count them, they are more in number of the sand. When I wake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against the, the wickedly. Then enemies take thy name in vain. We see this even somewhat fulfilled there in Psalm 22 where there are those that are crying against him and mocking him and ultimately by mocking the man of God, they are mocking the Lord. In mocking Christ, they are mocking the Lord. And so as he goes on, he says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? Uh, he says, I, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. He is completely against them because they are against God. He says, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. What a prayer this is that he writes there. But as we come back to Psalm 22, we see that David knows and Jesus fulfills in knowing that no matter what we feel, though we might feel abandoned, though we might feel as if we are just merely a worm, ignored or insignificant in the midst of such suffering and pain and turmoil, yet it is always the right thing to trust God, yet it is always not merely just the right thing to do and that we're supposed to do it out of, out of habit's sake or, or right's sake, but simply for the fact, as we've read there in Psalm 139, the Lord thinks about you and cares about you. His thoughts are precious and infinite in number. We cannot number them. Uh, we find here that as he cries out, he says, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. Goes, God, if you are able to form me in my mother's belly, and having already known and planned out and called out my life to be what it is today in this moment, then that means, Lord, today, though I'm suffering, though I feel as if I'm all alone and the world is against me and I against the world, I will trust you because your hand has been upon me from the day of my conception. So therefore, I will trust your hand to be upon me now in this desperate hour of need. Sorensen writes, The greater thought is that the Lord had been David's God since the day he was born. Now, this does not mean that he was saved from such. He still one day had to repent and put his trust in the Lord uh, and have it accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, God was obligated, though, to do something about the Christ he faced. God is going to take care of His children. Once again, the application to Jesus is all too apparent. He too belonged to God the Father since uh, His very conception. Implicit thereof is the thought for God to intervene and bring deliverance. You say, well, did God not deliver Jesus? Well, have you ever heard of the resurrection? I think He delivered Him, don't you? As a matter of fact, in Him delivering His Son, uh, not only delivered Him to the cross, but delivered Him through the cross and delivered Him to the tomb, but delivered him from the tomb, he has as well done the same for you and I. His deliverance becomes our deliverance. If Jesus was not delivered, you and I could not be delivered. So certainly Jesus was delivered. And now what do we find? He offers deliverance to all who repent and call upon his name for salvation. He promises deliverance to those of us that suffer for His name's sake and promises ultimate, final, eternal deliverance from sin, death, hell, the grave, 
in a separation bodily from Him that we will always be with Him, so shall we ever be. Then verses 9-10, through 10, Jesus' fulfillment of all this, and we'll bring this to a close. We'll land this plane here. MacDonald writes, It was God who had brought Him forth from the virgin's womb, speaking of Christ. It was God who had preserved Him during the fragile days of His infancy. It was God who had sustained Him in His boyhood and young manhood. On the basis of this past relationship of love of Christ, now appeals to God to draw near in the hour of His crushing, solitary trial. Jesus, even there on the cross, how do we know that He trusted Him? We'll see in just a moment that there on the cross, He still says, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now, why is this important? Because this gives us an example that to look back at God's past deliverance and provision in our life in order to trust Him in our present suffering and for our future trials. We find that today we can look back at all that God has done. If you're alive today, though you might be in the worst place you've ever been at physically, spiritually, financially, whatever else you want to, to put in on that, if you're alive right now, you can rest assured that God formed and fashioned you so His hand has been upon you. His thoughts are many towards you. If you are His, He cares for you in such a way. And that even before He formed and fashioned you in your mother's womb, He knew you long before He ever said, let there be light. Therefore, you can trust Him today. Therefore, though you may feel abandoned and alone, now is the time to be more aware of the presence and promises of God and to appropriate them by faith to your account that you might live for His glory, that you might know Him and draw near to Him in your time of desperation. Both the psalmist and Jesus find their hope in crying out to God in trust. Here's this is exactly what we see. David, of course, cries, Be not thou far from me, for trouble is near, for there's none to help. He says, none can help me except for you. That's why I'm calling out to you. That is my plea. None can help me except you. Luke 23, 44-46 tells us this. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, from twelve to three. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. And having said thus, He gave up the ghost. Man did not take the life of Jesus. Jesus gave His life for man. He laid down His life. He takes it up again is what He had prophesied and promised. But notice, even there, what had Jesus cried just a cry or two ago? Before that, what did He cry? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And yet, literally, if you will, in the very next breath, in the very next cry, if you will, what does He cry? Father? Hasn't He been abandoned by His Father? Isn't He being crushed by His Father? And yet, he still trusts him. He cries out to him, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. I belong to you. I've, we find in the life of Christ, he yielded his human spirit to the Holy Spirit. He yielded his will to his Father's will. He said, I came not to do my own will, I came to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus is the walking example, living example, and epitome of what it means to live the Christian life. We are to live having our spirit yielded, commended unto His Spirit that now dwells and abides in us. And then we are to yield our very will to His. If we don't do those two things, we will never suffer well. If we don't do those two things, we will never be able to have confidence when everything is crashing down around us. Suffering is to bring about an absolute surrender of our hearts to God's Word, work, and will. So ultimately, suffering is a good thing. Difficulty is a wonderful thing. Why? Because it causes me to depend more upon Him and less upon myself. More about Jesus, less about me. He increases, I decreases. <laughs> Jesus is the fulfillment and example of a life of faith in the midst of suffering and trials. Tonight, I hope you got something out of it. I got something out of it, and it's this. I can trust Jesus. And I ought to. 
because it was His blood shed so that mine would not be. It was He that bore my sins, my sorrows, and my griefs so that I don't have to because I never could. And I find that in Jesus I have deliverance both now and forever even when I don't feel like it. And I'm glad that my faith does not have to be dependent upon my feelings because if it was, boy, what a shape we'd be in, huh? I'm thankful that our faith is built upon the facts of the faithfulness of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. We're grateful, Lord, even for the suffering of our life that drives us to depend upon You all the more. We're grateful for what You've shown us tonight from the very beginnings and infancy of showing us Your protection and Your care for David, for Your Son Jesus, and for each one of us tonight. We are grateful as well for the theme of showing us uh, the blood of Christ uh, all throughout the Scripture that leads us uh, and draws us near that we can now come by His blood uh, to You now. Lord, without that shedding of blood, we could not even come to You in prayer even now in this moment. So Lord, we thank You for this new and living way that we come and approach You with, with a confidence, not in our own, but in the work of Christ that is finished and complete for our sins. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this time. We're grateful for Your Word, grateful for the work uh, that you do in hearts. We ask now that you would strengthen us for the week ahead and that we would be used for your honor and for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all.